By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. So in this episode, we are going to talk about a lot of people's favorite topic, swing speed and hitting the ball farther because we all want to know how to get more distance and swing speed is a part of that. So we've got someone who has specialized in that at an academic level. We have Dr. Tyler Standiford on the show. Tyler, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Hey, great to be with you guys today. So for our audience, we have a lot of super speed users who do overspeed training, but Tyler is the, what's your official title at super speed? You're the lead researcher, the lead biomechanist. What are you? Yeah. You know, uh, it depends on who you talk to, but it started out really just as kind of a biomechanics consultant. But now I think whether it's lead biomechanist, researcher, education, a little bit of everything I'm, I've been doing over there for him. Okay. So you're wearing multiple hats. And I know you've helped them out with some of their new protocols, which we'll definitely get into. But I thought we'd start the conversation. A lot of people, I think, are interested in swing speed. We keep hearing about it at the professional level, what pro golfers are doing to get faster. I mean, we're recording this the week after Matthew Fitzpatrick won the US Open. And he went from a guy who was complaining about swing speed and not having enough speed to having elite speed now and he won a US Open. So this is definitely trickling down to the recreational level. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your research, and what what you're learning about how regular golfers can acquire swing speed, if that's a mouthful for you. Yeah, no, for sure. So uh, again, my background, I have a PhD in biomechanics. And I guess my daytime job is I'm a full-time professor at Utah Valley University in uh, Orem, Utah. 
And most of my research is really kind of centered around how athletes of various sports utilize the ground in their sport to jump higher, run faster, you know, those types of things. And, but I'm an obsessed golfer. Started playing golf at a young age uh, with my dad's brothers and, and just loved the game. And in fact, it's why I actually got a PhD in biomechanics was to do golf research eventually. And so I've just kind of been able to put a little twist on what I've been doing and, and say, hey, golfers use the ground and the way they utilize it is really important to swing speed for sure. But I also think just the way they can hit the golf ball, deliver the club to the ball. And so for about the past year and a half, my lab has kind of solely been focused on those aspects of speed and specifically the high level are people gaining speed with overspeed training and how much speed are they gaining, but also a little bit of the why. So what's happening to the way they're utilizing the ground and is it improving and what's improving and, and are there ways that we can alter the way we deliver speed training to, to enhance those benefits. And so that's maybe kind of a, a background of, of kind of what got me into this. You mentioned, I think Matt Fitzpatrick is a great example of someone who's utilized this importance of speed to enhance and elevate his career. But I assume most of your listeners aren't competing for the US Open. No, we're trying to help the everyday golfers. And based on all the, the data I've seen from guys like Mark Brody and everyone else, the interesting thing is that the golfer who's driving at 200, 220, 230, they actually stand more to gain in terms of the strokes gained analysis than a pro golfer does. You know, they're fighting for fractions of a stroke and a, and a breakthrough of five to 10 miles an hour for someone who's swinging at 90. That could be worth two, three, four strokes, possibly even more when you factor in iron play. So it's a big deal for normal golfers. Yeah. And I think, John, I have, I'm a guy who loves data. It's what my background is. And so every time I have a question like what you just brought up, I want to say, okay, average golfer, our average user, what are they doing? And so basically one of my first tasks with super speed golf was to find basically every user I possibly could via surveys and YouTube videos and Twitter posts and whatever it is, just comb through all that and get an idea of what's going on with these users, our average golfer. And so in somewhat of a, a, a kind of a big sample size, you just mentioned some clubhead speeds. Well, if we take kind of the average super speed user, they begin with clubhead speeds of around 93 miles per hour. And on average, they're gaining about seven and a half miles per hour. So jumping up to about 100 miles per hour. Like you said, that's a big deal. I mean, you take a golfer who goes from 92 to 100 and then think they have then the potential to take their driving distance and also increase that by 25 to 30 yards, which is probably what you'd expect with a seven to eight mile per hour gain. And then the trickle down effect. One of my favorite questions I asked in the survey I did was with our super speed users was just after you've used it, average par four, you hit a good drive. What club are you hitting into a green? And most of them are reporting that they're hitting one or even two less clubs into the green. Then you can get into the stuff, the, the Mark Brody stuff. There's some cool stuff that actually ShotScope put out. It is actually one of my favorite numbers that they do with just their average golfers, where basically they show that if you can get someone to, and I'm pulling up these numbers, if you can basically get someone to move from a five iron to a seven iron, they're going to hit the ball 25 feet closer to the hole as a result of using two less clubs. Well, Adam... Remember, we talked about this in another episode. Why is that? You have the better answer than I do from the uh, 
well, ball I mean, striking physics perspective. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a shorter shaft from the skill perspective. Shorter shaft yeah. usually is a little bit more control for whatever reason. But yeah, from a physics perspective, there's more spin loft with a seven iron. So for any difference in path and face, you're going to get less deviation side to side because it's going to tilt the spin axis into a more neutral position. So basically, that's why it's easier to hit a wedge straighter than it is to hit a four iron straighter. Not because you're producing a better technique necessarily with a, a wedge but just because the extra loft is is creating that straighter shot for any errors that you're inputting yeah there's no question i mean i think golfers realize this anecdotally if you have an eight iron in your hands versus a five iron your chances of hitting that green being closer to the hole is better even a near green in regulation is also a good statistic to have as well i've seen this with shot scope where it's not necessarily you know the benefits of of hitting it farther off the tee, they show up on tee shots in terms of strokes gained. But when we look at the approach play, it's a game of proximity everywhere. So when you have that shorter iron in your hand, yes, you will hit more greens in regulation. But more importantly, when you do miss them, you will keep it closer to the hole because a 20-yard chip slash pitch shot is much easier to keep it closer to the hole than a 60-yard one. And I know there's a lot of golfers who struggle with scenarios like that. So it is a trickle-down effect. And I think the main thing about swing speed that I changed my mind on is growing up, Adam and I are at similar age, so we probably had similar learnings as junior golfers. Like no one talked about swing speed as a fundamental. I don't even think it was really discussed. It was either something like, oh, that guy is a really long hitter. He could just swing it really fast. But there wasn't any information on how to do that. Like how do I actually get faster? And I've changed my mind on this to the point where When I look at golf improvement from a 30,000 feet perspective, we have all the skills we talk about on this show, face control, impact location, ground contact, all these things. But I view swing speed now as one of those skills because the faster you can go while maintaining your golf swing, if you do it properly, it increases your potential as a golfer in terms of scoring. And it's not a fixed thing. We have tools, we have understandings on how to improve it for any level of golfer, whether it's physical training. We've had Mike Carroll from Fit for Golf on here doing strength training, mobility work, explosiveness training, or you're going to go the, the route with super speed, which is overspeed. Either of those methods, preferably done in conjunction, it lowers scores. So it's not this thing anymore where you say like, oh, I, I swing my driver X miles an hour. You're not. You're really not stuck there. I've seen some crazy results from readers of my site over the years who've either done super speed or other stuff and they're like hey i'm hitting it 40 yards farther with my driver in two months like that is potential for some people other people it's not as quick as a transition but it's there so yeah um, and i think i think you mentioned this john i think in the last decade we've gotten better with that i think there's still more ways to go and i think as we start seeing golfers of all skill levels see the benefits of speed training in these distances that you know And it's not just about scores. I also look at it just at the sheer enjoyment of the game of golf, right? We're all guys who love the game. And I can think of these research subjects who came into my lab who all of a sudden pick up. I had one in particular who had been playing golf for a couple of years. Uh, He did my study. He picked up like 16 miles per hour. He had a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of the way he was utilizing the ground and some training kind of adaptations. And guess what? Golf is a lot more fun for him when he's hitting the ball 40 yards further off the tee. I just think, like you said, I I think the data would suggest now that 
the old adage of drive for show, putt for dough. In fact, I did an analysis on the PGA Tour and found that the top 10 in strokes gained driving compared to the top 10 in strokes gained putting, those drivers are making 60% more money per start because of, of that. And I think for recreational golfers, they're experiencing a lot of benefits as well. Well, in our era, John, when we were growing up, I'm pretty sure you, it was the same for you. It was I love how we're, I love how we're talking about ourselves as old guys. Or we're almost. I'm, I'm no, starting to feel. feel we're like, almost forty. I still feel like a baby. Tyler, but, I think yeah. you're. I think you're young. You look younger than us. Well, you guys are making me feel like I'm really young. I'm just sitting back <laughs> thinking maybe these guys think I'm 22. I, I'll, I'll be 38 this year. So no, we're all the okay, same oh, age. So then. we're all from the same. Yeah, era. Okay, yeah. all right, all right. Yeah. Well, you, you look very youthful. So in our era, guys, <laughs> it was uh, sorry, era for Americans. It was almost frowned upon to chase distance. You know, I remember learning golf and it was all about curtailed backswings, cut off follow throughs, kind of like Luke Donald. Everything was about control. You know, I read Nick Faldo's book and, you know, he was probably one, he's, he's what, like six foot 10 or something. I'm exaggerating, but he's a big guy. You know, he could look, not look out of place on a rugby field, definitely. Yet he was never known for hitting the ball very far. Everything was about trying to achieve that control and there's always a trade-off right if you go from hitting a an eight iron into a green to hitting a six iron that's more controlled there's that trade-off we talked about with spin loft the extra long club that you're going in with and yeah it's still prevalent this myth because in my Facebook group, so I've got about 330,000 average golfers, there'll be people who post that, you know, I've gained an extra club or something like that, or there'll be people who are doing speed training. And inevitably, once they post those things, they get ripped into by the old school guys saying, oh, it's not about hitting it far, you know, it's all about control. It doesn't matter how far you hit it. So I would say still, but based on what I see, it's probably a good 80-90% of people who still believe that. So I think the education still needs to get out there. I mean, it's great that lots of people have read Mark Brody's book, but I think that's usually my go-to rather than arguing with people. I suggest that they take a look at strokes gained and what that means. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually really excited. Adam, as you mentioned that, it's it's one of the studies that I wanted to do from day one with speed training, and it's just taken me this long to get it rolling. But uh I'm actually doing a study where I'm looking at on-course metrics. So I'm using shot scope devices to actually measure these strokes gained variables. And uh, actually just this afternoon, I have 11 golfers who have gotten all of their baseline data for the past month of what they're doing on the golf course. Today, I'm going to introduce them to the level one protocol uh, with super speed. They'll train with that for six weeks. And then I'm going to look at their on-course data. And I think to your point of the education, I, I think it'll be great to look at this and see, wow, when you pick up 20 yards, you only maybe missed one extra fairway, or maybe you didn't miss any more fairways. And your strokes gained driving went from, you know, whatever it was compared to your handicaps, it went from one to three and a half. I'm really excited about this data set that I'll have uh, finished up hopefully the end of the summer. Well, let me ask you a question because this always comes up inevitably. And it should, because to be quite honest with you, when I first met Kyle Shea, the co-founder of Superspeed, and I've since gotten to know Mike Napoleon as well, they're both great guys. And they're you know somewhat of the pioneers in the product part of this category. That was the first question I had for Kyle when I met him. I said, I don't want these things screwing up my swing. I remember I was on driving range with him on a 100 degree day. 
And he was like, listen, we don't see that, but you're going to have to try and find out. And I don't think it did. I think it actually helped with some of my sequencing, which is what a lot of other people find. But of course, when you make a change in golf, there's always an inherent risk. We always talk about what do you stand to lose and what do you stand to gain? And that's typically in the context of a swing change. But with this, naturally, people are a bit apprehensive and I was too. So from your perspective as a researcher, now that you've kind of dug into these things and you've seen, I know you measure people in your lab, what are you seeing from a technical perspective in terms of before and after? Yeah, so I think at the highest level, if we look at some of the basics, I mean, I wanted to just look at things like even carry distance, ball speed, smash factors. Again, it, not that that's everything, but I think it at least gives us an idea of, okay, if, if my club speed went up six miles per hour and my ball speed decreased or my ball speed stayed the same, it didn't do me any good. Exactly. You're treading water. Exactly. And, and what I'm seeing is that club speed and ball speed are moving up together. So I'm not seeing guys that come in after it and all of a sudden their ball speeds have dropped or their ball speeds are, are tailing off. I'm, I'm looking right here at this same data set. And again, I'm seeing increases of like 10 to 12 miles per hour in ball speed. Which is the gold standard for distance because that's, that's just measuring how much energy you've transferred over to the ball. Exactly. So, you know, the nice thing was I'm seeing statistical differences from a research side, right? If we go down that road, I'm seeing statistical differences in both club speed and ball speed. And I think that's important to note from a meaningfulness standpoint too. I just think to see those both increase together, that's just what I'm seeing across the board. Now, I think, John, you bring up a really good point, And I think we've kind of talked about this, but, you know, let's not pretend that speed isn't a skill. You know, I think it's a skill that you can practice, that you can learn. And even like I've been working, I've been doing some online lessons with Jake Thurm in Illinois. And I've, I've had the poor issue of coming across the top a little bit. He's been trying to teach me to shallow my club. Well, my first few rounds out this year, I was stuck in no man's land and, and my golf game was ugly. And now after practicing that skill, like you said, John, I stood to gain a lot from getting my club on a better swing plane. And I'm seeing those results come through, but it took time. And I think swing speed is another one of those things where there's just so much to gain that I think it's worth it to try and develop that skill. We often get the question on Twitter, what is more important, hitting the center of the face or club speed? And obviously, it's, it's hard to give an exact thing of that because if you're increasing your swing speed by 30 mile an hour, but you miss the ball completely, <laughs> then obviously that's not relevant. But obviously, your data is showing here, Tyler, that at least from a broad data perspective, that increasing your swing speed is going to override any, if any, <laughs> misses of the sweet spot. So is is the smash factor staying the same? Do you have that data? Is it dropping yeah, down? I, I do have that. Yeah. And that's the last piece from a statistical standpoint. My smash factors aren't changing at all. Okay. They're staying exactly the same. So again, I think at just a really high level, Club speed goes up, ball speed goes up, smash factor doesn't change. In terms of efficiency of energy transfer from club to ball, it's staying consistent for the players who come into my lab. Are you measuring anything else in terms of what their body is doing or like swing path or anything like that? Yeah, I have some of that data, John, and that's not stuff I've, I've dived into as much. I'm not going to speak to that entirely, but I do have one subject I remember just 
because occasionally they'll come in, I'll have the data on my track man. And, you know, I have stuff that I pull out and dive into analysis wise. And then there's stuff as a golfer, I'll just notice and be like, hold on a second. And I'll pull up some pre stuff. I had a guy who actually had a, an out to in of like five, six degrees pre-training. He did my second study that I did and I'm looking at his data and he's like a, a, a one into out or almost a zero and I'm pulling up his side-by-sides and look at his ball flights. He, he went from hitting these almost like these pull or push slices to these power draws. This guy was picking up like 30, 35 yards. I think there's something about your body. Like your body needs to move really efficiently and sequence really efficiently to generate club speed. And I think what I've found with my research with super speed that's been one of my favorite things to see that was a little bit shocking to me was that when I give them these sticks and and they swing them really fast and that's the only cue I give them, they come back and they've improved the way they're sequencing, right? They're using the ground better. They're timing things better. Their swing is better as a result in every measurable way that you could measure those things. And so that's why I think to kind of Adam's point, sometimes I think it's just education if I could get some of these golfers from the Twitterverse or Facebook world to come in and do it and look at their force profiles or kinematic sequencing, maybe that might convince them a little bit. Is it enough time? Maybe this is a question for both of you because you have way more knowledge than I do. Just, I mean, anecdotally, the only thing I've noticed is if I do a, a speed training session that's you know, 20, 30 minutes long, if I then go and hit golf balls right after that, it will take me... 10 or 15 swings to adjust back. If I was going to play a round of golf, I probably would not do it in the same day or at least space it out quite a bit. But is doing three sessions of 20 minutes each a week enough to actually, you know, people worry about like, well, is this going to screw up my swing? Is that enough to like significantly alter a motor pattern for the worse? Again, I'm just trying to get into the the mind of golfers, which was mine too, is like, I don't want to do this and then screw things up. Like I, I haven't seen that myself, but I'm sure there's some golfers out there who have been like, yeah, I don't, I don't like the, the way this is making me feel. So, I mean, is it enough time to make that big of a change in your swing either way? Adam, I know you've studied this a lot. So if you want to throw in your two cents, I'm happy to say what I've seen in my data, but I know your expertise. You probably have a thought on this in terms of that kind of motor control, which is a little out of my wheelhouse. Yeah. I mean, uh, from what I've seen when people are going close to maximal effort, things can get a, just a little bit more inconsistent. But that's the whole point of speed training, right? It's to train so your upper threshold is higher so that when you go back to your normal playing speed, that normal playing speed is higher. So if you're 90% speed, if that's what you play with now, 90%, if that's 100 mile an hour, well, after lots of speed training, your 90% speed might be 110 mile an hour. You know, you may even be able to push it to 120. So I think that maybe if you've done your training and then you jump in and you go back into performance, maybe things are a little bit off. But I mean, the other side to that is I would just look at a person and if they say, well, I'm hitting it awful when I'm hitting it as hard as possible. I'd say two things. Number one, drop down to 90% to go back to that playing speed or just look at the patterns. Say, well, I'm hitting it awful. I don't like that phrase. I want more specific. I'm hitting out the heel or I'm hitting it thin. Usually there's a pattern there and it's like, okay, well, now you've found the pattern. You can introduce something to neutralize that. So for example, if I swing as hard as I can, I will tend to miss things more to the right. I'll tend to leave the face a little bit more open. 
So I got two options. I could go back to my playing speed, or I could continue to swing as hard as possible and just do something else to close the face. So that would usually for me be a stronger grip or something like that. So yeah, that's kind of how I view it. Two things you said there that I have some data on that I think is pretty cool is one of my subjects in my first studies to your idea of like, you know, you raise the roof, you raise the ceilings idea. This was a golfer whose maximal driver speed was 90 when he came into my lab. When he came in in his post analysis, he was just doing his warm ups, kind of trying to get ready for the data collection. I always have him go through the same warm up for consistency. And I peeked over at his TrackMan numbers just as I was getting things set up. His now like sub maximal warm up swing was 94 miles per hour. He was four miles per hour without even trying to swing hard. And so I think then he could go onto the course and in his 90% effort was now higher than his 100% effort before the speed training. So I think that's something to think about. Now, I've actually been doing something with my own game as I've been doing speed training and and kind of these lessons. I've been using that little uh, PRGR monitor. I'll set it up behind me on the course because my thought, Adam, is like what you said second, which is maybe I just need a little more practice at a little bit of a higher speed. And I don't want to leave eight to 10 miles per hour in the tank if I have the ability to swing, I just want to practice that a little bit more and figure it out a little bit more and just utilize that skill better. And so I've been taking that out on the course and just setting up behind me on a handful of holes every round just to see how my on-course speeds are comparing to my driving range speeds or my speed training speeds and, and just make sure that gap's not too big so that I get comfortable out on a golf course swinging 110 if I can swing 110 on the driving range. Yeah, we talk a lot about feedback on this show. I have a whole chapter about swing speed in my book, which is out now, The Four Foundations of Golf, available on Amazon. There's a shameless plug for everyone. But we talk about that feedback, and I talk about swing speed training in the PRGR in the book because it's super important to understand when you're going at it hard in those sessions and you want to see what you're swinging the light, medium, and heavy stick at, the green, blue, and red super speed sticks. You're keeping track of that. You're trying to beat your personal best. You're getting your body to self-organize in a way to move faster. And then more importantly, you're tracking with your driver in practice, what is your swing speed with your driver? What is your ball speed? And what is your smash factor? So you're seeing in practice now, okay, my swing speed's increasing. How's my ball speed? Because that's really a measure of how well you're striking it. And then more importantly, the last step, I actually played golf with Mark Brody last summer and he had the PRGR with him. He took it out of his bag and he was measuring me. He was collecting all types of data on me all day, which was a little unnerving. It made me nervous. He was like, let me see your swing speed on the range. And then we went on the course and it was, I think I went down from like 110 to 108, which was interesting to see. Probably going at it harder on the range where there's less to worry about than the golf course. But yeah, the, the feedback I would say is someone who's done speed training on and off for six years now is that you have to be using some type of device. Everyone uses the PRGR now. It used to be the sports sensor one, but PRGR will give you ball speed and smash factor and distances. Super important because you just don't really know. And you can push yourself harder than you think you can when you have that feedback. So it's a really important point. Yeah, I was actually doing a data collection this morning with a one of my neighbors is 85. He walks 36 holes twice a week. Oh, man. Incredible. I love those stories. Right? This is this guy's awesome. Great game. So I had him in. I'm going to get him into some of my studies with trying to help him enhance some speed. 
And I was in our TrackMan facility. I just put up swing speed and I said, okay, let's see how high we can get this number. I want to see what you got in the tank. And he kept going. It dropped down a little bit. He kept going. And anyway, he, it was just, just watching him look at that number and really feel what it feels like to go after it. That, that feedback is such a key component, I think, in speed training across the board. So another question that always comes up when people are figuring like how to, obviously, how do I increase my swing speed? And if they're pursuing this type of training is stuff like, how long does it take to see results? What happens if I stop? I mean, you, you know, the questions that you've gotten over the years, I've gotten them tons of time. Why don't we start off with what you can expect from the outset? You know, if you're following the protocols that Superspeed uses for the mm-hmm. first four to six weeks, what are reasonable expectations? I don't, we have these home run scenarios where someone gains like 15 miles an hour in a month. And I'll, I'll tell you about one after that's absolutely insane. But what's, what's reasonable? Yeah. And I, and I think what we need to recognize too is that if you could tag on four to five miles per hour to the average golfer, that's huge. Right. Oh yeah, that's that's significant. That honestly, it's no different than like reducing three putts, hitting your wedges oh, yeah. closer. It's it's all part of the same mix of golf. Yep, it's, yep. it's significant. So that was something actually. This was last summer. I helped uh, Super Speed kind of look at some of their protocols. Actually, answering questions that you just asked right there, and a few more, which is a you know how much do I need to do this to get gains, and what happens if I stop, and and those types of things. And so our new protocols basically outline two different phases. So we have what we'd call a, a primary training phase. This is where we really want the golfer to gain speed and be training to gain speed. This is where they're going to do the training three times a week, 15, 20 minutes a day. And to answer that question, John, we do see that that's enough to gain speed. Our expectation and what we see across the board is that golfers on average will gain about 5 to 7% of club head speed in that first four to six weeks, we could say. So again, if they're at 100 miles per hour, we'd expect them to be somewhere in the 105 range after about five or six weeks. Can you do too much training? Sorry. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's a great point, Adam. This is one of those things where like, let's say you haven't done, I don't know, let's pick squats. You haven't done squats in the gym in two years and you go and you do squats in the gym somewhat heavier than you should. And this is one of those scenarios where like you're walking down the stairs the next day, you're holding onto the handrails, you're sitting. I hate that feeling. I love that. (laughs) You're like, what do I touch to help lower myself into the bathroom? I mean, (laughs) all those things. Speed training isn't that way, right, Adam? I mean, if if you went without speed training for a year and then went and speed trained, you wouldn't wake up the next morning and not be able to like put shampoo in your hair. But when we're doing this neurological-based training, when we're really trying to elevate our kind of central nervous system response to the body, it is really fatiguing. It is really taxing. You just don't feel it the same way. And so you can do too much. Taking the full time off, only doing it three times a week. And we have a lot of players of all skill levels will say, well, I want to gain eight miles per hour in five weeks. So I'm going to do it six times a week. And then they only gain one mile per hour and they wonder what the issue is. That body needs to be fresh for those speed sessions. Three times a week seems to be about the perfect space of you're stressing the system enough, but not too much that you don't have it to go after it the next time you speed train. And, and that's one other, offers, you know, one other warning I'll throw in there is make sure you do the warm ups that oh, are on I, the website because <laughs> you will you will pull something if you don't. John, that was actually a question I asked in my survey about pain because I think that's the other thing we see a lot too a common question like, well, is this going to hurt me? And what I found is that if I classified people as people who always do the warm up, 
versus people who don't do the warm up. The people who do the warm up every single time, their pain on a scale of one to 10 was like 1.2. It was negligible. But those who didn't do the warm up, it jumped up to like four. Like, well, that's why we tell you to do the warm up. Yeah, it'd be no different than if you were trying to like do some sprinting. And all of a sudden, you just like start at the end of your driveway and run as fast as you can. Like, I pretty much guarantee you, you're going to pull your hamstring or something yeah. like that. We're talking it's, about it's age early. I don't have to warm up to get out of bed these days. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm literally not joking. I have to step on the ground really carefully because I'll pull my plantar fasciitis. Well, it, it is it is important to. I mean, we we do have golfers of all ages. Mm-hmm listening to this show. And I have emailed back and forth with even people in their 70s doing super speed. They've asked like, is this okay? I'm like, well, listen, first of all, like, you know, I I, I would say to anyone, like you have your general physician, you talk to them, like, I don't know what pre-existing injuries you have, stuff like that. But I think a, a really good rule of thumb is someone who's probably done over a couple hundred of these training sessions is get your body warm. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've had an episode with Mike Carroll on dynamic warmups. And I know Super Speed has some dynamic warmness that you do. You, you got to get a little bit of a sweat going, get that body super warm, or else you're going to pull a neck muscle or something like that. Something's going to hurt. Yeah, it's it's very safe if done the right way um, yeah. and done at the right intensity. And I think your body will self-select that right intensity based on your age and your skill level, especially if you have that warm up. And so, and that warm up is so important. The other thing we did that I was really excited about is we introduced these kind of maintenance phases. When you think of athletes of all skill levels, you know, it's tough to operate at the highest level every single week. There has to be this kind of cyclical pattern of training really hard and and ramping down, but then giving enough of a stimulus that when you ramp down, you're not losing your benefit. So I think we have a lot of users that do those first six weeks, right, John, they finish the level one protocol, they pick up six miles per hour, they're hitting past all their buddies, they're like, sweet. And then what happens? Super speed clubs go back in the box, they go in the shed, and they think that speed is just there. And it's not right, you're not going to hang on to it, just like any physical function, you're going to lose it if you don't utilize it. But there's a lot of really great research that when we're dealing with kind of speed type exercise, high velocity type exercise, it really only takes about one exercise every seven to 10 days to retain those benefits. So it's not that you're going to keep gaining speed at one day a week, but at one day a week, you're going to be able to hang on to all of the speed that you've gained in those six weeks and give your body a little bit of a break in order to ramp up to kind of that next cycle. And I'm sure, John, as you've been doing speed training off and on, I'm kind of in the same boat where I'll have times I go at it hard and times I scale back a little bit. When I do it once a week, even probably two, three times a month, I don't see a drop off in my speeds. I think it's hang on to it. It's similar to something like lifting weights. If you were someone who had an intense lifting regimen of two to three times a week and you were getting stronger and then all of a sudden you stop for three months and then start up again, you're probably not going to be able to do the same weights you did three months prior versus if you did maybe one full body workout a week, you can Mm -hmm. maintain a lot of that strength. So that is something important to understand with people. And it's happened to me where like I've gone hard over the winter, I've seen the gains, and then I stop cold turkey and then they're gone for a bit. So there is certainly a maintenance factor there. One other thing that is helpful, and I know we had done a webinar with Kyle and Mike probably a couple of years ago with some practical golf readers, and we talked about the plateau phase mm-hmm. because that's a that's another important in terms of managing expectations on what you can expect from this is that 
it's very typical for someone who's never done anything like this before to get those quick gains and then you hit the plateau phase. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a good point where consistency is key, right? And I think to expect that you're going to just keep jumping up at 5 to 7% every five or six weeks, that's not what we're seeing. What, what we typically see is in those first five to seven weeks, we see that 5 to 7%. And then we do see a lot of this plateauing where a golfer might sit at, you know, maybe they go from 100 to 107, and then they sit at 107 for like three months. And that can be pretty disheartening. And I think the key is that as you continue that stimulus, as you then have to, you have to get a little bit more serious about your speed training. And that doesn't mean like, okay, well, I'm going to take tons more swings. I'm going to do all these things. It might be that you need to work with someone like a Mike Carroll to say, okay, I've caught the low hanging fruit. I've captured my speed based on my given strength. Because my thought is that I think a lot of people are swinging at below their current strength level, if that makes sense. We have a lot of people that ask strength or speed, strength or speed. And the correct answer is yes. But I think there's a lot of people who have a specific amount of strength that could handle more speed. And I think that's what we see initially is a lot of people getting that jump. And then as you plateau, yes, you might have to get a little more creative about, okay, I'm going to have to add some strength components. I'm going to have to continue on with the speed training. I think the worst thing we see is in those plateau phases golfers will just stop doing it and then they drop back down and then they have to build back up to their plateau. So those plateaus will come. And But what's great about it is if you stick with that really consistent, consistent work ethic over the course of time, you'll hit that next jump. And next thing you know, maybe four or five months down the road, you go from the 108 to the 112. And now you've set this kind of new plateau or this new normal for you. So you're pretty much describing me because <laughs> I've essentially talking with Mike Carroll a lot and learning from him. I think I squeezed a lot of what I could with the sticks and continue to to do maintenance with that. But I, I've kind of plateaued at 108 or 110. So I finally focused on my, we talked about walking around with being sore in your lower half. I avoided my working my legs. I skipped leg day for 20 years. So <laughs> The last six months, I've been like really going hard on the legs and I'm not sore anymore, thankfully. The micro tears aren't as bad, so I can walk the next day, no problem. But I've been really focusing on getting my lower half and core stronger as well as the upper body to kind of – because strength is an important component Mm -hmm. of it too on your upper level. So there's all types of things that can happen. I'll I'll tell you an absolutely true story. I I don't want to make this as a promise to everyone. I've been kind of coaching a friend of mine who – his name's Nick. He used to be a, a really good track athlete in college. I think he was the best in the Ivy League conference at, at, at his event. So super good athlete, probably has a lot of inherent speed from the training he did in his early 20s. He's probably, I think he's like 30 or 31 now, starting to get into golf. So I've been helping him and he's been showing me his numbers and his, his swing speed was in the low hundreds. And I'm like, do me a favor, try this thing. So I, I sent him the sticks and he got a PRGR. <laughs> in four weeks he sent me a picture his swing speed i'm not making this up this is real his swing speed was 121 miles an hour and his ball speed was 175 and he showed he texted it he, but the funny part is he texted it to me he's like is that good <laughs> he didn't understand the context of that i'm like you're at pga tour level now like that's kind of unheard of but again he's a very good athlete he stuck with it just exploded like needs a new driver like totally everything needs to change now i mean that's 
a very special outcome, but for some people, like they just explode. It's crazy. I've gotten actually a few emails like that over the years where they're like, Hey, I started doing this. I'm at 118 now. Like, where do I get a new driver? I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, that, that you will need a new shaft and you will need probably a new driver head. We are going to take a quick break there and we will be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire. So it's a great place to get help. Now, here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I got an email from a guy the other day. He he texts me. He does a lot of work in his TrackMan facility. He's in a study I'm doing right now. And he sent me a, a screenshot of his driver. And he said, my first drive out of the gate went 270. I usually only hit it 250 when I'm totally warm. And he's like, and then I hit eight irons 15 yards further than I was hitting. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, you adjust your distances. Do you want to go back to hitting your driver 250? Like who's mad about gaining the speed? But I think we see that a lot. And I think with those people, John, especially as we deal with the aging golfer, right? I'm, I'm with two really old guys right now. And then me as the young one, but with the aging golfer, it's like, as you get, especially as you start to approach your forties, if you do nothing, especially in an off season, you're going to come back after that off season and have lost five yards. And then two more seasons, you've lost another five. And so I think the idea of continuing this speed component in conjunction with strength, but if you stop the speed training, it's going to be disheartening as, as we get older. So there's almost like three things that I can think of off the top of my head that relate to speed. One of them is the physical stuff that we're talking about, the strength and neuromuscular conditioning. There's the intent as well. I don't think we've touched on that, but lots of people just aren't swinging that hard. You know, they're not trying to. Sometimes you can ask someone, what, what is it like to swing as hard as you can? And you see a jump in their speed. There's also the mechanical parts of things as well. So, you know, swing length, how you're using the ground, how you're sequencing the body. I know we mentioned 
Well, you mentioned, Tyler, that sometimes you can give people speed sticks and the mechanical self-organizes. So they, without thinking about it, that's what self-organizing is, without thinking about it, their body figures out more efficient patterns. Do you ever directly change, you know, make suggestions to people, you know, can you push into the ground more here, push into the ground more there, change this, start with the hips more, or what, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, and I think, Adam, that's one of those things where I think now that we have people who are utilizing force plates to look at golf swings, we have a, a good understanding of the kinetic sequence, right, of the golf swing and the importance of really at a kind of a, a quick overview the importance of sending force to the lead leg, sending force there early in the downswing. And most amateur golfers are not sending near enough force and they're not sending it there early enough. And so what you've described there, I think is what I'm seeing in my data actually happens without me having to tell the golfer to do anything. So what I've seen in my lab is that, you know, this speed training tool with super speed is the kind of thing that without me even giving any instruction, like you've just described, they start doing those things in that self-selection process. I think that's where if we were to look at some of these plateauing effects, you know, in my ideal world, well, I don't know if in my ideal world, I want every super speed user in my lab, that would make me quite busy. But, <laughs> but if I could get these golfers to come in my lab and say, okay, let's look at the plateau. Oh, okay. Well, you're not generating enough rotary power in the swing. And that's because your force in the lead leg is going to the wrong location. So let's work on sending force in the downswing to the ball of the foot. You're too far in the heel. I think those are the kind of things that really kind of fine tune our speed training. But again, across the board with those initial studies, I saw large increases in lead leg vertical force I saw that force go to the leg earlier in the swing. And what I love about that is I think it becomes this tool or training aid that will, I don't take care of a lot of issues with the golfer ground interaction without anything other than just swing this thing fast. Well, that's good because it kind of fits in with the thesis of my book as well about self-organization. I mean, I, I talk about two different things as well. So, you know, I use the example of say a weightlifter if they're just lifting weights over and over, they're going to get stronger. But maybe if their grip strength is the block, you could do something away from a deadlift to improve the grip strength. And then that might help the deadlift as well. But in general, I like the idea of self-organizing. I like the idea of giving someone a task, an intent, and letting the body figure out how to do it. For the most part, I prefer that as my, uh, my method of improvement. Well, what you're describing is what I essentially figured out without figuring it out specifically. Like as I was going hard with the sticks and saying like, how could I make this number get bigger and bigger? Something experimenting with that lead leg to the point where I was felt like I was pushing into the ground and pushing up. And then that transferred over to the golf course where if I was like, maybe on the course in a practice round early in the season, I'm like, I'm going to let this thing rip. I would have that focus and no one told me to do this of course this is you know i'm not <laughs> i have no knowledge of biomechanics or anything like that but i had that sensation that you were talking about where i was pushing off the ground with my lead foot i guess i doing the training it brought that out of me i didn't know what it was but it just you know as people described it like you are now i'm like yeah i was doing that for sure yeah and that's a, i think you had mentioned kyle and mike and and i obviously am new to the super speed organization well Kyle and Mike, 
they have some impressive backgrounds in terms of what they were doing. You know, they weren't just two random guys who, who stumbled upon this idea. You know, Mike has a master's degree and I think it was going to be like a music theory. So he does a lot of learning. He studied a lot of motor learning and Kyle has a great background and kind of this physical component. And so I think on purpose, they put together these protocols that do what you guys have just described. One from the component of Mike to say, hey, let's allow these golfers to self-organize and just figure things out. There aren't a lot of instructions in the super speed protocols between, hey, here's the drill position and then swing as fast as possible. Figure it out. Use the radar. And oh, wow, that felt fast. And I was doing this with my lead leg. And then I think the other thing that's really wonderful about this is the drill positions. Like I can't say enough about the different drill positions, you know, the step change or the step back and step through or the hill stomp. When I put people on my force plates and have them do these drills, I mean, the kinetic sequencing just improves drastically. And so I think when you combine the drill positions with the self-organization to figure out how to make this club move fast, together, this is creating some really impressive improvements in the kinetic sequence of the golfers. Well, sometimes if I'm with a, a student looking at it from another perspective, I can see certain blocks. So say, for example, someone is making a swing with speed sticks and their speed, there's a significant increase, but then they go back to their club and it's just not transferring. Well, sometimes I can look and, and see, well, with their speed stick swing, they would be presenting the face probably 45 degrees open. <laughs> Right. So obviously when there's no club phase there, that might be the case. But then when they go to a club phase, their brain says, well, no, the main goal here is to get that club face on the ball correctly. So then I usually add something like maybe a stronger grip or change what they're doing with the, the wrists at the bottom. So that squares the face back up again. And then you can see they're then able to produce the speed that they were doing with the sticks. So that's just a, a different way of looking at it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Here's a question that I know I've gotten this question via email so many times and my response is I'm not sure that has value. So some people like to take their driver without a ball and swing it as hard as they possibly can. And then they get back to me. They're like, yeah, I was using the PRGR and that swing is not nearly as fast or it's different than when I'm hitting the ball. And I'm like, just me personally, I don't see the value of doing that because there's no different weight to it. Like, yeah, if you're doing an overspeed training system like super speed, there's different weights for a reason and you're not swinging with the context of a golf ball in front of you. It changes things. But on top of that, and I think Mike Carroll hammers this point home a lot too, if you are doing swing speed training, it's also super important to go at it hard with your driver. Like when I'm done with some sessions, I will hit drivers afterwards and go as hard as I possibly can while hitting a golf ball. Mm -hmm. So just anecdotally, I never found any evidence that swinging my driver without a golf ball was was helpful like what do you think about that yeah I'm, I'm with you on that and in, in terms of some things that i've seen is i think there are, are two ideas here one is when i'm just swinging fast and doing that training i want to make sure that my focus is on making that thing move fast and i think when you do air swings with a driver you potentially can introduce that now if you're using air swings as a driver maybe as a pre-post assessment let's say so you don't maybe have an ability to get to a range and you want to assess some speed gains, for sure. Throw the driver down in front of your PRGR and take a couple swings and, and let that be a pre versus a post. But I think the weights are important. The no club face is important. And then I think in the very best scenarios, you could have those sessions directly following where you learn how to transfer 
club to ball. I think those sessions are really key to transferring things out to the course like you've described, John. Yeah, I think if you are going to do something like this, or if you currently are, I found some value even outside of using the sticks when you're just at the range with your driver. And let's say you're doing some driver practice with 10 or 20 balls. I will choose several of those balls and go like Happy Gilmore crazy on them. And I know Mike's Mike Carroll's a proponent of that as well. And again, tracking the feedback, seeing like, well, what kind of ball speed can I generate? And what's interesting with that, whether I'm using, you know, I have a SkyTrack so I can look at it there and get a little bit more data. I'm also figuring out, well, if this is my, you know, Adam mentioned 90% before. So it's important for me as a golfer to understand what my cruising speed is and then what my limits of that are when I go on the course. So I will experiment with going super hard for two reasons. I think it helps build the speed, but also... I want to see what happens to my ball striking tendencies when I do go that hard so that when I'm on the course, I have these reference points where I have (laughs) do a uh, space balls reference. When I go ludicrous speed with my driver, I know I just can't strike it as well. So I know what my limits are and I have to establish those reference points so that when I'm on the course, I'm saying like, okay, this is what 107, 108 feels like for me. I can't go 111 because I'm going to hit it all over the map. I'm not going to strike the face well. And some other things are going to suffer. So I think throttling up, down, medium, whatever you want to call it, that's been very helpful for me. Yeah. And I think it, it's funny. Think of how many people go on the driving range and, again, practice a, a swing path or a swing face control or something they're working on with a coach. Like, why can't hitting golf balls really fast be a part of what you do on the driving range, too? It's intent, as Adam said before. Intent exactly. is super important. Yep. Should be. It should be. This is a, a nice little bridge bridging gap as well sometimes I'll, I'll use a foam ball i do this in my own swing as well if i'm trying to just increase the speed hit it as hard as possible i'll take away a real ball and that loses your fear of a bad shot because you're no longer worried about the result but you still have the intent or you still have that object in the way that you're still trying to precisely hit and luckily my gc quad measures what the club head is doing So I can hit these balls as hard as I want without any fear of what's happening. Yet I can still look at the club head data after. Then I can make adjustments with that player or with myself before we put a real ball in the way. Mm -hmm. So it's a nice little bridging gap there. Yeah, it's a, that's a great idea. That's I have to I have to go to foam balls to my son in the backyard after he uh, put a ball (laughs) into my neighbor's uh, side of their house. I should have done that. I, I think I've told this story before, but in high school I draped a blanket over my closet in my bedroom and I hit real golf balls into it. I was super impressed that I'd made like a driving range in my my room and my dad didn't say anything about it at first. He kind of let me go with it and his home office was adjacent to my bedroom and one night, of course, I shanked one and it went through the wall. I heard a few footsteps. He's like, that's over with. I'm like, yep, that's done. So <laughs> probably should have done the foam balls back then. No, True man. story. I also hit, I also one time hitting balls in my parents' front yard. I pulled one so far left, it bounced down the street. And I heard it hit a car and I ran over sheepishly. And for whatever reason, there was a police car just parked there. He was just kind of doing some paperwork. He had to stop for a second and I hit his car. <laughs> so... He, I ran into my house. He drove up. He knocked on the door. He said, were you hitting golf balls? I said, yes. And he said, you know, you hit my car. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I didn't break a window, but also a true story. 
Anyways, no, that's not in the book. I have some other embarrassing (laughs) stories in my book about how I broke a golf club once in front of my dad, though, just as a uh, teaching moment to other people. Anyway, (laughs) enough about me and my embarrassments. So I think we covered a few important things is that sticking to the protocols is important with this. It's like any physical endeavor you're going to take, whether you're looking to become a better runner and lower your, your mile lift weights better, whatever. You're going to have to do it consistently a few times a week. doesn't have to be a crazy amount, 20 minutes, three times a week, nothing more because that could potentially diminish the returns. And then if you're going to stick with this for the long run, expect that there can be some quick gains, perhaps followed by a plateau. And if you don't use it, you will lose it. So there's definitely a maintenance phase specifically for golfers. I hate Every time I say the word off-season on Twitter, I get the guy who says, what, golf off-season? And it just drives me absolutely crazy. But for golfers like me who do have an off-season and I do my speed training in the winter, yeah, you're going to have to expect maybe doing some maintenance stuff once a week during the season is Mm -hmm. important because it's just like anything else. Like You could develop the skill and then you could potentially lose it if you do nothing anymore. So I, I get these questions all the time for years or people are like interested in this product and doing this training. And like, I just want to be honest with them. I'm like, yeah, I think it's going to work for you, but you got to be willing to put the work in. Like most training aids, to be quite honest with you, are junk and they don't produce straightforward results. I think this is one of them in the golf industry that actually does because I think Kyle and Mike, like you said, they have some solid research behind it. Now they've got you on board. So it's it's one of the training aids, if you can call that, in the industry that I I do truly respect. And I've seen the results in my game and plenty of other golfers who've been on my site. Let's talk, I don't want to keep you forever, but do you want to just talk a little bit about the changes you made to the protocols? Because I think there were some people who were using super speed for years like myself and then I forget how long ago it was at this point, but there were some major changes to the protocols and there's now like two plus years of them on the super speed mm-hmm. spike. But could you just talk a little bit about what changed and why? Yeah. Yeah. And the training protocols are, are they're one of my favorite things. As you talk about training aids, the first golf training aid I ever bought, you guys are my same age. So maybe you might remember this was the classy swing magic with the sliding grip. Oh God. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad, I, I saw an infomercial on it, asked my dad if he'd go have these. He did. We got it. I used it for a week and a half and it rusted out in the shed. <laughs> One, it, it didn't work super well. Two, there wasn't really any direction. It's just like, okay, yeah, swing this thing. And, and that's how a lot of swing training aids are. And so Super Speed's really serious about these protocols. They want users to get their stuff. They want them to use it and they want them to get the benefit. And so, as you mentioned, again, there's two plus years of protocols that we have on the website. And when we looked at those, again, my background being in exercise science, it was like, number one thing is adherence and consistency. Number two thing is probably making sure that the stress is large enough to create a response, but not too large that you're going to introduce injury. And so as you got into some of our later protocols, the old protocols, golfers were taking like, 100 plus swings. Um, Now, those were split half and half between a dominant swing and a non-dominant swing. But still, it was a lot of swings. Uh, It was taking a lot of time. And it was something that where we just looked at it and thought, gosh, do you really need 120 swings? And and we thought, no, I, I did a little bit of research in my lab to look at this. And it seemed like, I think our, our first protocols right now are about 39 swings. 
And those are some things that we looked at and thought 39 is probably plenty to get the response that we'd like. Our later protocols jump up to about a little bit over 50, which I think is a nice place as well to create kind of the response that we want to see for these golfers. And so that was a big thing. The number of swings was a big part of it. Another piece, John, that I was really passionate about was rest periods. And this was something where now all of our protocols have some 90 second to two minute rest periods built in before you swing the red club. I did some testing on this in my lab pretty extensively to say, should I rest between every swing, between every two swings, every six swings, every 10 swings? Should I not rest? Should I rest between clubs, between drill positions? And what I ended up finding, John, was that resting between every club was too much. Every two seemed to be too much. But typically, golfers could make about 10 to 12 swings before we would see a fall off in those speeds. And so we introduced what we would describe as a mandatory rest period, not too much rest because we want that golfer to get into a flow of feeling what a fast swing feels like. But now we have those rest periods that appear before every red club swing. And what I found is that the red club speeds jumped anywhere between maybe, I don't know, four, all the way up to maybe 10 miles per hour of swing speed if we introduce that two-minute rest before them. I think that was a a really good change uh, in the protocols. Yeah, the red club... And just for people who don't know the weights, the the green is the lightest, blue is medium, and red is heavy. And it's the red's quite, for someone who's never done stuff like this before, it's almost a bit intimidating in the beginning. And I've seen some, I guess enough people doing is your max with the red club is really your potential with your driver swing or close to it. Have you guys found that a lot? Well, so interestingly enough, John- Or does that not hold up? (laughs) I'm just going to say this. I ran uh, a bunch of correlations between super speed club, different clubs, dominant, non-dominant, and their correlation to driver swing speed. Interestingly enough, the club and swing that had the highest correlation to driver swing speeds was the green non-dominant swing. Wow. I would have never, I mean, for me that the red was, I have my worksheets I was looking at when I first started doing the red, it was probably around a hundred. And then last winter, I got it to 111, which was the biggest gain for me. And for a while, like I think the green and the blue were the ones I saw huge gains with, and the red was kind of like tailing behind. Maybe it was fatigue or strength. But yeah, I think, I guess everyone has a different experience. But yeah, and non-dominant for me was hard as well because, and for people who've never done it before, like if you're righty and you start swinging as hard as you can lefty, it's very awkward at first. Yeah. Well, and I think, John, there's there's pieces as you brought up where Mike Carroll and I actually chatted with this a little bit too. I think if you tend to be upper body heavy in your swing, maybe a little bit early, you might find that you can swing the green club faster than someone who really engages the lower body. You mentioned that you incorporated some of the strength training with your legs. And it wouldn't surprise me then that your red club speed would start to increase because I think those with maybe stronger legs might see a red club potentially, or those swing speeds might go up and down based on kind of that. And again, to these non-dominant swings, which I think is is part of our protocols, you know, that was something, again, everything was on the table when we looked at these protocols. You'll notice that we changed a few drill positions. The kneeling swing was a little bit difficult to get people to do. And we found that there were some ways that we could incorporate the movements we were trying to get with that swing in other ways besides Ian Poulter in his white pants on the driving range trying to kneel down and get mud on his knees. I think that was a change we made. But looking at these non-dominant swings and 
Are they essential to the program? Do they actually cause swing speed gains? Uh, and is there a piece of that that's really important? And that was actually a study that I just completed earlier this year, looking at non-dominant as a potential modality to gain swing speeds. And, and because we saw such good promising results, it was natural for us to leave those in the protocols. Nice. Well, I think I've gotten through most of my questions at this point. Adam, do you have anything else for there's just one on been thinking of? What mechanical changes do you tend to see when people are doing this speed training? Do you see longer swing length occurring, different sequences? Obviously you talked about lead foot pressure and, and the timing of that as well. What specifically changes with that? Yeah. So in terms of those specific, so I've, I've done two kind of main studies where I've actually had groups of golfers on force plates and on the TrackMan or PRGR to assess kind of club speed, ball speed numbers. So one of them was we just followed the level one protocol doing both dominant and non-dominant swings. And in terms of if we think about sequencing of the ground, and I think a lot of us can envision the long drive guy or I've seen them with Justin Thomas and Rory, these guys. But if you watch their lead leg, it's almost like their lead leg does a little bit of a rainbow type motion. I've, I've heard it described. So it, it tends to move up. It tends to move away from the target and it tends to move behind the golfer. So if we think that those are kind of maybe three of the main forces that are important in swing speed, how much force do they push? Yeah, And again, this is ground reaction force. So golfer is pushing on the ground. The ground is pushing back on them. It becomes important then to start to measure the grounds push up, the grounds push away from the target, and the grounds push behind the golfer. And in my first study, those variables during the downswing all increased by about 13 to 15% in six weeks' time. These are the kind of things where if some of my athletes I work with at UVU, a, a volleyball player, basketball player, if, if I told them I could give them 13% more force in a vertical jump, in six weeks of training, 45 minutes a week, all of them would do that training, right? These, these are pretty big numbers. Another mechanical component, Adam, that I, I thought was pretty cool to look at, there's a, a biomechanical data piece, we call it impulse, which is the thing I describe as like, if I threw a water balloon to you, Adam, you'd catch that water balloon much differently than if I threw you a tennis ball. You know, with a water balloon, you'd, you'd cradle that a little bit, you'd increase the time that you're applying the force and, and things like that. And basically, the idea was early on in the swing, we want to generate as much impulse as we can because impulse is going to directly translate into our change of momentums or change of velocity. So, you know, I've heard Sasho talk about hand path length. It's the same type of idea. He talks about it from a work principle. So I'm going to apply the hand force for a longer distance. Well, in the same way, if I can apply more lead leg force for a greater period of time, that can also lead to great changes in the golf swing. And the time period, if we just take the time period from the transition of the swing to club vertical, what happened was as a result of the speed training, that time grew a little bit. And as a result, the impulse grew drastically. And I think a big part of that is just the byproduct of the fact that if you utilize the ground really well, you're probably less likely to kind of throw your hands and cast those hands early in the swing because you're transitioning force with the lower body first, right? As opposed to those guys that are just going to throw their hands and arms at the club really early on. And so it took them quite a bit longer to get the club from transition to vertical 
And as a result, they ended up generating a, a really large impulse during that time period, which then what that does is now for the rest of the swing, you now can put more energy and momentum into that swing. And all of a sudden now they're swinging faster as a result. So that was kind of a cool little piece. And I mean, this, this variable increased by like 60% in these golfers. I mean, it was a huge increase in this change. So am I interpreting this correctly? It's more they're using the foot more like the balloon catching, but a well, greater amount of force as well, just over a smoother amount yeah, of time? Yeah, great point, Adam. So let's think, balloon is a good one to think about it, but you're sharp. You're sharper than a lot of my biomechanics students because you're looking at it thinking, well, I don't want to decrease the force. So let's think of it even maybe like a trampoline. If I jump on a trampoline and I generate the same amount of force, but I generate it for a longer period of time, I can jump higher. And so what these golfers were doing is they were generating the same amount of force and even a little bit more force, and they were doing it for a longer period of time. So it almost became like a trampolining effect where they weren't reducing the force and increasing time. They were keeping force constant, but increasing the time they applied that force. And now all of a sudden we have you, know, you think about the golf speed, right? We've got ground up and we've got hands out, right? Both kind of the two contact points in the golf swing. This was showing that speed training really had a benefit in the time that the force was applied and at right periods of time, right? I don't need my swing to be fast early on in transition. I want my swing to be fast through the impact zone. And so it's okay to slow some things down early on increase that time because that's going to create more transfer of energy at ball impact, which I thought was was really cool. You know, what's interesting, you mentioned Sasha's name. We had him on the show and he was talking about his research with foot joint and the types of shoes and how that can make a difference. And something I noticed, I think it was two years ago, as my swing speed got faster, I used to love wearing like golf sneaker style shoes with not a lot of grip on the bottom and it never really was an issue. And I started noticing on my drives, my lead foot was slipping backwards to the point where I was afraid I was going to get hurt. And I was like, I can't wear these anymore. So now I'm playing golf with like more stable and much more aggressive soft spikes on the bottom because I just realized like I used to be able to play golf and sneakers, no problem. And now I can't do that anymore because it's happened enough times where I'm like, I just can't hit my driver of fear with my lead foot slipping on me. That, that's not something I want to play golf worrying about, but that did legitimately happen to me. Yeah, this is, this is a good example again to now you're utilizing the ground better than you ever have. And as a result, you have to use different golf shoes. You know, that's an okay change to make to try and enhance that friction there, right? So those are some of the cool, I think, technical pieces of it, Adam. One additional just kind of small piece was when I did do my second study, which was a non-dominant only study, this was actually a study where I had people go through, they were right-handed golfers, they went through the level one protocols, but they only took left-handed speed swings. That was all they did. And one of the forces that, that becomes really important, and I, I was just actually down at, at TPI this last week, and Greg Rose there was talking about this idea of the one time your lead leg maybe acts a little bit like a break is it does have to kind of stop your momentum forward so that you can get a nice rotation. Otherwise, right, you just fall over the top of your foot and can't finish with the rotation. So that variable increased in these, this non-dominant group by like 25 to 30%. It was a really, really huge increase. 
partially because in a non-dominant swing, you're using your lead leg as a trail leg. And I think that helps you learn some different ways to utilize that. And, and the other part that was cool was that golfers in the non-dominant study, they also picked up about six to seven miles per hour of swing speed in that study as well. So uh, With the correct way of swinging? With like a, a right-handed swing, right? So okay. their right-handed driver swings went up six, seven miles per hour, even though they only did speed training, you know, non-dominantly. And I think, Adam, this is, I know you have a, a real interest in some of the motor learning control, learning, teaching aspects. I think if I was able to get some like brain activation on these golfers, I think you'd find that in these non-dominant swings, the... I don't know if self-selection is the right way, but, but, but the way they're interacting, their brain and their body really locks in to a greater extent because, it, John, as you described, it is such a unique way to swing that you almost, the focus, the attentional focus you have to, to put on it, the way that you have to think about how you utilize your body is enhanced so much as a result of those non-dominant swings. And, and I think there's uh, a lot of good research to suggest in other tasks that does transfer over to the the other side so yeah it's almost like what we call differential training where you're using crazy variations of what you want to do and somehow it transfers over like they've done the soccer studies where they do it blindfolded or kick with the alternate foot and yep yeah you know i do uh, on a golf level i do less aggressive versions of differential practice where they're still trying to hit the face but more towards the toe or towards the heel so doing something that they don't want which lots of golfers would say, oh, that's going to make me worse, right? If I'm practicing hitting the toe and the heel, I'm going to get worse. But no, it actually makes someone better. It makes them able to hit the sweet spot better because mm -hmm. they're more engaged in something that otherwise would be automatic and, and not consciously controlled. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think we uh, – do you have any more questions for Tyler, Adam? I'm good. Good. Yeah. Well, first off, thanks for coming on. We don't typically – I always tread carefully with products in the golf industry because it's a very slippery slope. I've written a lot about training aids on my site. I've been like you. I, I was a junior golfer. I purchased a lot of training aids and there's still a ton of them out there and they're not all bad. I just find that a lot of them aren't necessarily relevant. You'll pick up a training aid that is looking to, I'm not going to name any specifically, but there's some that like are focusing on one part of the swing and that just might not be relevant to a user or they're not fun or they're just designed very poorly. So the reason I'm comfortable having you guys come on and talk about this product is because I've had experience with it personally. I wouldn't have these guys on if I didn't use the product myself. And I've also had a ton of practical golf readers over the years who've used it. They've seen the gains. It's been very helpful to them. And it is a legitimate way to lower your scores. Just another arsenal that people can think about when they want, like, how can I get better at golf? You could do all the things that Adam and I discuss on the show, whether it's you know the practice method, strategy, a ton of other things. This is another option for people specifically in helping you hit the ball farther off the tee. That is a, a stroke advantage. It's a fact. It's not really debatable anymore. I don't think it, it will negatively impact your swing. If anything, I, I do believe most people stand to gain from it. But of course, you know, you try and, and find out. And it's backed by a lot of research like you guys are always trying to – I'm glad you came on board to kind of push the protocols even farther. So, yeah, that's just like my honest view on all of this stuff. I wouldn't put it out there unless I had a high degree of confidence behind it I and mean, what it could do for your scores and if it's a safe, proven style of, of golf training rather than just <laughs> – I bought some others. There, there are other swing speed trainers out there. You know the infomercial ones. 
Yeah, there's there's a prominent swing instructor uh, who used to be on TV who's pushing it. I bought it as a joke where I did a kind of an expose on training aids that were on the Golf Channel. And the thing broke and it didn't even, <laughs> it wouldn't display my swing speed and I broke it after two swings. It started rattling around. So yeah, there, there's some doozy products out there, but I'm very comfortable saying this is not one of them. So yeah, thank you for taking time out of your day to explain some of the science behind this. Yeah, no, it was great to be with you guys. And yeah, great, great to share. It's been fun for me to dive into the data and, and see things come to light that, that really show this isn't a magic sauce. This is actually uh, teaching golfers how to utilize the ground better in their golf swing, which I think we can all stand to benefit from. And I think you have a little thank you for the listeners from Super Speed. So let us know. We got a little discount code. Yes, for sure. So yeah, if you, if you head to our website and use the discounts code Sweet Shot, Sweet Shot. Not Sweet Spot, Not Sweet Shot. Sweet shot. <laughs> Let's make that very clear. Yeah, Sweet Shot. Then we can give you a 10% off and uh, yeah, those things are ready to ship and, and there to help you start gaining speed. So Cool. Well, Check it out, superspeedgolf.com. Tyler, where can people find you if they want to badger you on social media? Yeah, for sure. Uh, questions. Yep, so I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram, you know, under Tyler Standiford. So you can find me. And again, if you reach out to Superspeed Golf, a lot of those emails end up coming my way uh, when users have questions. So uh, yeah, glad to interact with you and answer any questions you might have. Yeah, I would encourage people if you have more questions reach out to them directly i've been pushing guys over i mean kyle the ceo of the company has responded to readers of my site directly so if you got questions reach out to them they're happy to answer them yep so thanks for your time and adam where can everyone find you well if they go to adamyounggolf.com i have some information if people want my speed stuff that would be in next level golf i don't have the distance plan yet, although that is on the on the cards Ooh, at some point. Yeah, teasing. to add to the strike like plan <laughs> and the swing plan and the accuracy plan, there will be a distance plan eventually. But uh, most of that information is going to be found within Next Level Golf right now. So I'd be withdrawing the content from there. John, is your book going to be out just yet? Oh it, yeah, it, it's out. So you can find me at practical-golf.com, and of course. Many of the topics we discuss, super speed golf is mentioned in the book. It's the four foundations of golf. You can find it just by searching that on any Amazon market around the world. I talk a lot about what we discussed and, and more importantly, the statistics behind it and how that's relevant to your game, how to train for it, all that stuff. So you can check out my book and thanks for everyone for their support. And we will see you next week with a new episode.